about five years ago, um, I was in the process of the beginning phases of raising money to start a church. Um, and there were some hard, difficult moments through that process. Um, moments that made me want to quit. Moments where I seriously considered quitting. And along the way, um, I had something pretty incredible happen. I, I met some really great people who kind of came around me. Zach was one of those people. But there's this really interesting thing that the Holy Spirit did. Because he, he dropped my name into the hearts of two specific people. One of them was a friend who at the time lived in L.A. His name was Josh Roberts. And then there was another friend named Ryan McCullough. And they both had planted churches. They both knew exactly what I was going through. And somehow, Ryan and Josh don't really know each other. Somehow, both Ryan and Josh would call me on those really low days without communicating with one another. Like, if it was Ryan that would call me first, I knew later that day at some point Josh was going to call me. And it never, it, it never failed. It happened every single time. Never met Josh in his life. Ryan has, has been a huge... Uh, encouragement to me over the years. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you, some of you may remember me using a fly rod as an illustration during a sermon. Ryan was the, the, the friend that brought that into my life. And we actually spent uh, the last two days fly fishing up in Estes Park, um, which was fun. Yesterday was really cold. But um, I am so excited to be able to, sh uh, to let Ryan share with you what they're doing. Um, they, they're missionaries to, to Wales. I'll let him get into that. Um, but I am so grateful to have him here this morning. So give him a hand. Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you today, and it's an honor to serve Jesus. It's just the best life there is. Um, I get to work with uh, a person who I think is probably one of the best missionaries um, I've ever met, and I, I'm married to her, and she was going to do this whether I came into her life or not, and God just brought us together and decided that we would be better off together than not, and, and so my wife and I have served together in all kinds of work, just, just about every kind of church ministry you can imagine we've probably done, uh, from kids ministry to um, to, to worship ministry, um, youth pastor, associate pastor, church planner, uh, 
interim pastor. And yet there was always a, a knowing in us that God would someday tap us on the shoulder and say, it's time to go um, to another country. And that happened one day. I, I felt that, that I heard God speaking to me. And I'll never forget giving up everything to him that night. We both laid there and, and cried. Not because we were sad, but because it was this overwhelming sense of knowing that God was giving us direction. And all we had to do was ask. And he would tell us what to do. And so in that surrender of saying, God, I'll go to the other side of the world for you, and not knowing what that would lead to, God said, okay, well, now you're listening. I'll tell you what I really want you to do <laughs> is to start a church in pretty close to where you're at. And we oftentimes in life don't hear the voice of God as clearly as we do when we're in a moment of desperation. Because when we have it all figured out on the front end, it's easy for us to make plans and then ask God to authorize our plans, which is not a good step. We all know that it's better to follow Jesus and what he's asking us to do and his plans are better than our plans. The Bible says it this way, his ways are higher than ours. And so if you're at a point of wanting direction from God, I recommend ultimate surrender. Because although it sounds like the scariest thing ever to say, God, I'll do absolutely anything for you. If it scares you, it's because you haven't experienced the love of God enough. Because if you knew the love of God and the way that your pastor was talking to you about a God that loves you so intensely, you would know that there's nothing greater than to follow his plan. You could say also in the same breath, there's nothing scarier than following the plan of God. But you can be scared and have peace. You can be scared and not have fear. You can overcome the physical response of your body saying, this doesn't feel right, doesn't feel safe, doesn't feel in my comfort zone, and yet have a deep understanding and a knowing that there's nothing that God can't handle. And following him is just the greatest joy. And as Sam said, when you're doing that, God puts you in the middle of some amazing relationships because he doesn't want us to do life alone. And so I really appreciate you, Sam. Um, I, I wouldn't normally like prefer to have a hotel where it was a couch and a hundred pound boxer came and slept on my lap every night. <laughs> But I got to thinking about it. If it's my dog, I'll let him lick my face and I'll like, <laughs> to him and everything. You're like, what an idiot. I mean, 
you look at the, your behavior and like how you how you loosen up when it's your dog. <sighs> and that got me to thinking there's just there's a handful of good dogs in your life, right? And not to make an analogy, Sam. <laughs> but the reality the reality of it is you count your best friends on one hand. Not, not that you have right now, but that you ever get. And so those moments of being licked by a 100-pound boxer become love to you, and you actually fall asleep and feel better than before it happened because... I felt at home with you, you and your family. And I say that from the bottom of my heart. I'm not trying to tell a funny story. I just, it struck, it struck me that, that partnership and family, um, when, when life gets informal and messy and boring, is where you feel the most at home. And that's the kind of friend that you are to me. I don't feel like I have to impress you. I don't feel like I have to ask you a bunch of questions. Um, it's just the pleasure of being with you. And I appreciate that very much. And with that said, I know what kind of a pastor that you must have here. And what an what a, what a honor it is to serve God with people that we love. We love working in Wales and we love the Welsh church. It's not a place where Americans have been involved in ministry for very long. Um, but most of you, whether you realize it or not, um, have been impacted by the Welsh church. And it would take a long time to unpack all the history of that, but a revival happened in Wales in 1903, 04, 05 that began a worldwide um, revival, truly. And the things that happened in America, especially in the Midwest and in California, during the early part of the 20th century were a direct result of what started in these tiny villages in Wales where it wasn't one preacher, it wasn't one event, it wasn't a tent revival or a meet, it was people were starting to be drawn to the church to pray. And those prayer meetings would last through the night. Um, there's a story that I just read yesterday of a person going to the prayer meeting with his family. His kids fall asleep. It's two in the morning. They say, we better get the kids in bed. He gets up at 6.30 to go work in the coal mine. He comes home at four and goes back. He cleans up, takes a shower, goes back to the church, and it's the same meeting that he left the night before it was still going. The person who's credited with being the main speaker of the revival, Evan Roberts, had only been in that service for about 15 minutes, and he came and he said, let us pray, and then he left and went to another church. Um, with that great amount of spiritual fervor came the building of about a church a day 
and it was Welsh style. It was brick and mortar. It was stone upon stone. So when you visit the valleys in Wales, and if you don't know where Wales is, it's just a small country that's off to the west of the United Kingdom. Um, the language is older than English by about 2,000 years. And the people who lived there were some of the first Christians after the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. Romans were coming there in the year 200 and bringing the gospel to them before it was even cool. And they were finding people that had seen visions of Jesus and said, I already know that story, tell me more. I have gone to churches and attended communion services where it's gone unbroken for 900 years in that same place that I'm sitting in. It's just a fascinating thing to have your worldview be changed. And yet, as of 2015, in the UK, we're losing a church a day. So with the same intensity that God moved in that country and moved around the world, and sparked a worldwide revival, everything just seems to be amped up to 11. The problems, the failures, the decline has been intense, to say the least. And I hear just recently pastors that we're talking to and new friends that we're making describe, I said, just catch me up. I'm new to the country. I'm new to the culture. What was it like? If I, was, if I started my ministry in Wales, what would I have found? And just easily rattled off the names of 20, 22 different churches in the county that we live in. And I'm realizing I know all these places because I've been to all but a few of these places, but there, there aren't churches there anymore. Only about four are still there from the 1990s. So the decline that we're well, it depends on how much you nerd out on church news in America, but the decline in the church here has us all worried as a collective whole. We're, we talk about how people are losing faith. We talk about how people are walking away from God. Mainline churches are declining rapidly. Churches are kind of flatlined and plateaued, not growing. There's really cool things happening in church planning, but on the other hand, as a whole, we're seeing a a curve of a generation being lost, another generation being lost. In the UK, that decline started about 40 years before it did in America. So what we have isn't a church that's defensive and worried about the condition of what might happen if somebody comes in and takes away our religious rights and the church here is kind of like this posture, right? Sorry, but that's what I see. We're worried about what might happen to us. The church in Wales is just accepted this is the way that it is, and they realized, guess what? God is still here. He still loves us. The church is still vibrant and full of people that love the Lord, no matter what happens in their society. And we get to work in this beautiful country where we've been invited and sent. So people like you, uh, help us get there. We have about half of our budget comes from churches. About half of it comes from individual supporters that allows us to raise a budget. 
Um, this is what we're doing now. And then we go and work there for three years, four years, and come back and do it again. Uh, but we are given the freedom to be able to minister without boundaries, without limits, because we're part of a really great missions organization that sends out about 2,000 missionaries to over 200 different countries and places throughout the world. Um, Wales being a very newly open field. So uh, about the last seven years, we started having activity there. And so I want to just give you an idea of um, what it's like and, and also how you could pray for us. And then I want to share the word with you. And the reason why I have a message for you to preach instead of taking the whole time to talk about what I'm doing is because I don't look at this as a fundraising adventure. And then so I get to go and do missions. I look that this is a part of being a missionary. Being with you today is just as important as any other work that we do anywhere. And because we're serving the same Jesus and we're on the same mission together. We're just in different locations. And so my personal belief is that what makes a good mission service, and so maybe this is new to this church culture, or some of you have never had a missionary come and preach on a Sunday morning, is that what we do is we say, God, the Holy Spirit, is the energizing force behind the advancement of the church. And the Holy Spirit doesn't empower us so that we get weird. The Holy Spirit empowers us so that we're able to do what Jesus did because nobody ever had more access and more of the Holy Spirit than Jesus did. And yet, what he did with that Holy Spirit empowerment was he preached the gospel. In fact, we define a whole genre based on the ministry and the words of Jesus. We call it good news. We call it gospel. But what it is from a theological perspective is the Holy Spirit empowering a human being to say the words of God that God wants that person to say so that humans can know what God wants of them and what God is telling them. And so for us, there's nothing greater than to have a relationship with God. And the way that we know God is through Jesus as our Savior. The way we figure out that we have a Savior is that somebody has to tell us. Isn't that the most important thing? That we know Jesus? Can you think of anything more important? So with that said, what we're doing in Wales is exciting, it's fun for me to tell you to, that we get to be a part of something, but nothing is more important than telling people about Jesus. And so my personal belief is that a mission service should be we together allowing the Holy Spirit to come in and change our perspective a little bit and help us to do a better job at being on the mission that God has us on. So before I get into the word, I want to ask you to pray about a few things. First of all, it's a newly opened country uh, that's in a desperate state of church decline. About a percent of the person, persons around me are involved in church at all. Um, and we have a tremendous shortage of pastors. 
So you have, according to some literature that I have, you have more than one pastor serving here. In Wales, we have roughly 50 churches, but we don't have 50 pastors. So when a church loses a pastor, I, don't, I can't think of a better way to say, but that's, that's a permanent thing. Something could change, but most likely if a pastor were to move to fill another vacancy, he would leave a vacancy that wouldn't be filled. And that's a real problem. We have, as a country, really lost our way in terms of having a good system for raising up pastors and leaders. And I want you to pray because that is a biblical thing. Jesus asked us to pray the Lord of the harvest. So Jesus said, ask God. Pray to God and ask him to send more workers into his harvest field. So even though it's a very personal request, I know God's going to listen to us as we ask people in America to pray for more pastors in Wales because that's just praying in line with the will of God. And the other thing um, that I would like you to do is uh, pray for people like my friend Alan. People that are in old established traditional churches that are innovating because the Holy Spirit is energizing them. Alan and Gaynor, very Welsh name, are about 55 years old. They've pastored a church of about 12 people for the last 10 years. Every time a new family is added, it seems that somebody in the church dies, so they're right back where they started. And he says to me, Ryan, I am not okay. And I knew right when he said that, that he wasn't exposing that he had emotional weakness and he needed a hug. He, just, he was saying it in a different way. He says, I see kids outside in the neighborhood. And that is not the demographic of our church. We are a group of gray-haired people. I am the youngest person here. I am not okay that there's a generation out there that doesn't know God. And I said, Alan, that is a holy discontent. That's what I call that. God bothering you with something because he wants to do something about it. And they started, I kid you not, a kids ministry with no kids in it. They opened up the church on a Thursday. They set up and nobody came. And so they prayed. Sounds like a story I told you earlier, right? He invited me to come because we were bringing a team in from Texas that was going to just do whatever they needed. And I said, it seems as though this is the main push and the main drive that you have is wanting to reach the kids. We're not going to come in here, set up a big show and do kids ministry. That's not going to help you. What's going to help is connecting with the community and getting the word out about this, helping you with your facility, making it a more welcoming place. So we did some real brick and mortar, nuts and bolts kind of work for them. Um, did some publications for them, made some signs, gave their church a new sign so they actually knew it was there. 
And so I came on a night where they had five kids. What happened was nobody showed up, and yet they were able to say to people in the neighborhood, we have a kids' ministry on Thursday night. It's just a really revolutionary idea. It's not happening, so start it. (laughs) It's like people that say, I'll get married when I can afford it. (laughs) And so there were five kids around the table, and I'm telling you, it was 1960s Sunday school. Flannel graph, coloring pages, puppets. And yet, I wasn't rolling my eyes and thinking, why are they doing it this way? I was thinking, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen in a church. And none of it mattered because every single kid that was there had never heard the story before. They didn't know that it was old technique. They didn't know that the methods were outdated. And when you get the opportunity to sit around with five kids and they are asking you questions like, I've heard of Jesus, but I have no idea what he did. Will you tell me? Which one of us would not want to be in that situation? It was amazing. And they continue just to love on these kids with really no resources. He isn't being paid. He had an outside job, but he lost it because he had to have a couple of toes amputated and he couldn't walk. So he lost his job. His wife is working full time. And I asked him, what do you need us to pray for? And she said, will you pray that I get a part-time job that pays me almost as much so that I would have more time to devote to the kids? What do you, how do you come back from that? And then we move home. This is right at the end of our time in Wales. And we move home and I get a Facebook message from Alan. And it says this, praise God, brother. We had 12 kids last night. And they effectively doubled the size of their church in less than a year after beating their head against the wall. And to me, that underlines and underscores a biblical theme that we're going to talk about for the next, probably I have two minutes left. How much time do I have, Pastor? I want to know, seriously. That's perfect. Because the Bible is chock full of people who against impossible odds saw God do miracles. The perfect and prime example of that is when Jesus said, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it again in three days. Meaning of himself, you kill me and I will rise from the dead. And nobody has ever done a physical feat greater than that. But we know as believers that it wasn't just a person being raised from the dead. He died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And God himself came down. But him, Jesus, had a rough road. He had a very hard time. 
And because of the power of God that was at work within him, he won our salvation for us. But you look at how he fits into the pattern of people that serve Jesus. I want to share with you about Elijah just for a few minutes. If you'll go there with me in the Bible to 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. Elijah was a prophet that was a long time before Jesus. And prophets didn't have very easy lives. They, they were usually sent to pronounce God's judgment on people that weren't obeying him. So he was the guy that said, okay, you guys are out of line and you're not serving God at all. And so because of that, God's going to get your attention First of all, I'll let you know, if you don't listen, then God has step two for you. Step two is never where you want to go. It's like, yeah, I won't even... But he prayed and it stopped raining. For more than a day, for more than a week. It stopped raining for like three years. I don't have to spell that out for you what happens to a country when it stops raining for more than a year. That's famine like we have never understood. So do you think he was very popular in his country? (laughs) And there's a Bible story that usually if you grow up in the church, you learn about it as a kid where God took care of Elijah by hiding him near this stream, and then he brought food to him by the ravens. The ravens brought him food. But then there was a time where he came out of hiding, and there was a showdown between Elijah and the people that were worshiping the false god Baal. So him, an obscure prophet going up against a strong empire... And it was this thing where in 1 Kings chapter 18, I don't have time to read the entire account, and I won't assume that you all know the story, so I'll try to paraphrase it, but he came against his adversaries and said, here's the deal. Take all day and pray to your God and see if he'll answer you. What are the terms? Whoever's God answers by fire, he is the real God. So they just went bananas all day and nothing happened. Their God was silent because their God is made out of rock. In fact, it's ironic because their God is made out of something that Elijah's God created, (laughs) which is really, and it was an idol, right? But nothing happened. And then Elijah prayed this short little, like, I call it a Gettysburg Address prayer. I mean, it's like, it shouldn't be that powerful, but it is. And he prayed and God, woof. Consume the sacrifice that he had doused with water. (laughs) I think he really must have wanted to prove a point and tick them off because why would you take the most precious commodity and then pour it out on a sacrifice? But he did. And so they knew when God consumed the sacrifice with fire that there really is a God. And people turned to God But Elijah also had a lot of trauma that he was walking through because he had to pronounce God's judgment everywhere he went. 
and he killed people. I mean, you think you have adversaries. He had adversaries. And here he was at the top of his game, seemingly, in my mind, at a place of invincibility, if there ever was a person who should have the confidence that it doesn't matter what happens, God is on my side. He's, he's been taking care of me. He's going to take care of me. And so his term of pronouncing judgment was that phase was coming to a close. And so he began to pray that the rain would come back. And it did. And he says one of the most bold things I think a person has ever said, except for maybe when Jesus said, I'll rise again in three days. That's the most crazy thing anyone's ever said. But Elijah said, right here at the end of second, or First Kings chapter 18, if you'll go there with me. So he got down on his knees and he prayed. And the rain was a distance away. The Bible says that there was a cloud arose out of the sky that was the size of a man's hand. So somebody looked and said, yeah, it's about this big. And Elijah said, that's it. That's the answer. And in verse 41 of 1 Kings chapter 18, it says, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink. There's a sound of a rushing rain. So Ahab went up to drink and Elijah, Ahab is the, the king. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down to the earth, put his face between his knees he said to his servant, go now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. So he prayed and the prayer wasn't answered. So he kept praying. I mean, that's pretty amazing. He prayed once and the fire fell. And then he prayed for the rain to come back and nothing happened. But he persisted. He prayed again and again and again until it, Verse 44, it says, Behold, there's this little cloud like a man's hand rising from the sea. And he said to Ahab, here's the crazy statement. He says to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. Can, can you even see how outrageous that statement is? It hadn't rained for three years. It wasn't currently raining. There was no real evidence except for this little whisper puff cloud out in the distance. And he tells the king, you better get your chariot ready because it's going to rain so hard you won't be able to get through. And the Bible says the spirit of the Lord came upon Elijah and he tucked his outer cloak into his belt and this middle-aged man ran 40 miles faster than a horse. I don't get that impressed when I see 26.1 stickers on the back of people's car after I read this. Middle-aged man, fully clothed, wearing a heavy coat, ran faster than a horse. But it was because God's spirit enabled him to do it. 
And in chapter 19, we see this instance where somebody slips him a note. I mean, it's like junior high tactics and says, and he opens it and it's hate mail from the queen. And she said, I am going to kill you, you sorry. Yeah, it was like that. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, you are a dead man. And this guy who has all the reason to trust God in the world, for whatever reason, he was tired, he was beaten down, he was emotionally a wreck, he was suffering from PTSD. He was depressed. And that, you never know, friends, what it's going to be that pushes you over the edge. It was just a threat on paper. And it struck fear into his heart so severely that the Bible says, that he took off running for his life. So we pick up with him in chapter 19. And it says he was afraid, verse 3, First Kings chapter 19, verse 3, he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. That's just sounds like your typical Bible sentence. But do a little digging and find out that in that little period space between two sentences, it says he was afraid and he ran for his life, period. When he came to Beersheba, well, we don't know where that is unless we look or unless we know. He ran a hundred miles. And you just say, well, I guess he must be some kind of a runner. Well, no, the Bible says that God enabled him to do this one thing this one time. And then the rest of it was him running because he was afraid. And he ran 40 miles under the power of God, but he ran 100 miles on adrenaline out of his own fear. And what I'm here to tell you today, friends, is that fear is a horrible, horrible motivator. It causes you to do things and push yourselves to boundaries that God never designed you to do. It's like the red line on your car. It's just an imaginary line, but it's put there to tell you, don't be an idiot. It's not that your car won't run in the red line, it's just that it won't run very long. And we're the same way. When fear is our fuel, we break. And Elijah broke. And in his brokenness, he had the opportunity that no one has ever had before. He ran out in the desert to commit suicide. He left his servant, and he went a day's journey in the desert. And he said, God, kill me. I'm no better than my ancestors. And God said, I'll take you from where you are. He took care of him. He put him on the side of a mountain and said, I want to meet with you face to face. And God came by and the Bible says 
talks about how God came through with this powerful wind that was so powerful that the rocks exploded and there was earthquakes and there was wind and all these things, but the Lord was not in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire, but there came a still small voice. And that's what got Elijah's attention. And he came out from the cave that he was hiding in, doing exactly what God told him not to do. He said, go stand on the side of the mountain. But Elijah went, "Uh uh-uh. And he went and hid in the cave. And he was so burned out that all this just amazing glory that was going on outside of the cave, he didn't even want to see it. But he said, a God that wants to get so close to me that I could hear him whisper, that's cool. And God says to him, man, what are you doing here? And he makes this complaint and he says, you know what, God, I'm the only one left. And everybody's trying to kill me. I'm paraphrasing for time, but God asked him the same question and he answered again, I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. I'm going to read to you a rather normal sounding portion of scripture and then I'll close with a thought, okay? So, Elijah's gone through all this trauma. He's seen all these miracles take place. He's felt like for years that he has fought a battle that nobody else is engaged in. God's giving him the ability to carry this burden for the work that he has for him to do, but he feels as though everybody is against him, everybody is out to get him, and everybody wants him dead. And isn't that the way we feel sometimes when we're contending for what's right? And the enemy would want nothing more than to put us in a smaller and smaller space until we believe about ourselves that we're the only people that care. And God says to him here, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael king. Anoint Jehu. Anoint Elisha. He'll succeed you as prophet. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And so God's basically saying, all the things that you're worried about, I'm, I already have a plan to resolve that. Your job is now, you're coming to the finish line of your life. Your job is now to pass it on to other people who will do the work. And guess what, Elijah? I know you feel this way. I know you feel alone, but the work was going way before you came along and it's gonna continue way after you're gone, buddy. And God ends with this closer. He says, I reserve, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
And I ask you this question, would any of you face-to-face with God be able to lie to him? I mean, we've all lied to God. We all have. The Bible even says it, all men are liars. But would you be able to, if God was there right in front of you and you could see him, would you be able to tell God a lie? No. So how could Elijah say, God, I'm the only one left? Nobody else cares. And then God, in the very next breath, he gives him this discourse and he says, Elijah, here's the deal. I have 7,000 people serving me, none of which you obviously know about. So you tell me, I'll leave you with a question that I won't try to answer for you. Was, God, was Elijah lying to God? He told him something that wasn't in fact true. So is that by definition a lie? But what happens to us is we begin to believe the narrative that we tell ourselves. And so when God and Elijah were standing face to face, Elijah told God what was really in his heart. He really did feel all alone. And I tell you that story, all of this to come to this point. When it feels like you are taking on hell with a water pistol, what good could I do? I'm only one person against so many. God is the one that reminds us, you're working in your own strength, but I'm able to make it rain. And no matter what your perspective is, you may not be as bad off as Elijah where you're wrong by a factor of 7,000 to one. But each and every one of us in some way, in some regard, has underestimated the love and the grace and the mercy and the power of God. And I just want us to think about as we close in prayer, what is the story that we're telling God about the world that we live in? Are we telling him that it's a dire situation and that nobody cares and that I'm the only one who cares and so I don't really want to hang out with those people because they really don't care as much as I do? People don't want to hear. People don't want to listen. And we begin to tell God the situation of his world. And I pray this morning that we would be surprised by how wrong we are. And it wouldn't be a bad thing. It would be a good thing. So Jesus, we come to you now and I thank you that we can stand in front of a world that you've called us to reach. And instead of having fear and thinking that we're fighting a losing battle, we're reminded of the fact that you are unstoppable and your love is unquenchable. I pray today, Lord, that you would show us the power of your love the depth of your grace. And I pray for that person today that may be running out of fear, running on adrenaline because of the experiences that they've had. Lord, that you would be that God to them 
that would get so close to them that it could be heard in a whisper. Thank you for your word that encourages us. But I thank you that it isn't just a word for Elijah, but it's a word for us today. And I pray for this church, Lord God, that's contending for the gospel in this area that's, frankly, it's quite hard to reach. But just as you were able to do it in Elijah's day against impossible odds, and you took one man to stand against armies, and you protected him, we take that, Lord, to mean that with a group of believers who are unified, that we truly are unstoppable with you at the helm. And I just pray a blessing over this church today. Yes, Lord, we pray for Wales. We pray for the work that's going on there. We pray for more pastors and leaders to be raised up. Pray that you'd help us, Lord, to accomplish the work that you've called us to. But today, Lord, there's nothing more important than us pouring our hearts out before you and saying, Jesus, would you empower me with your Holy Spirit once again so that I could do what you've called me to do? Take my inhibitions, take my fears. Rewrite the narrative that I've been telling myself over these last few years and show me what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor.